You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Everybody, Brian McClanahan here. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute covering the week of December 28, 2015 to January 1st, 2016. So we've turned the page on the new year. We're putting the old year to bed. And this is going to be a great podcast because we're going to talk about uh, the year that was in the Abbeville Institute in 2015, some of the great articles that we had. Of course, also the week in review for that uh, particular week, December 28th to January 1st. So we're wrapping everything up, looking forward to a great year coming up. Uh, we're going to do 52 of these probably uh, in the next year. So hopefully, uh, you know, God willing, we'll do 52 and if uh, nothing changes. But uh, we do appreciate your support. Uh, we appreciate those who uh, donated to the Institute right at the end of the year. Uh, we are a uh, 501c3 cor- uh, uh, nonprofit uh, organization. So if you do want to donate to the Abbeville Institute, uh, you can get uh, uh, tax deductions to the full extent of the law. So uh, please consider a donation. Uh, we do exist on your donations. Uh, all these things that we do, whether it's the website, the podcast, the conferences, the summer schools, everything that we do exists because of you. And so we want to thank you from the beginning. We would not be here without you. And uh, we would not be here exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition without you. Uh, you are uh, what keeps the Abbeville Institute afloat and what keeps us going. So again, a big thank you from, from uh, the members of the Institute, uh, from myself included. And uh, we look forward to another great year, um, hopefully a, a better year than what we had this year, which was uh, in many ways one of the best years we've ever had at the Institute. So uh, remember to, to donate if you are so inclined and keep us going. Um, also remember that we have a conference coming up, the first conference of the year in February of 2016 in Charleston, South Carolina. The topic is the PC attack on the South, and uh, there's no more important topic today for the South than this particular issue and what's going on. And I'm actually going to talk about one part of that uh, for this week and an uh, interview that came out uh, uh, yesterday uh, about the uh, Confederate battle flag from a famous Hollywood director. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a minute. What I'm going to do this week is actually start in reverse. I'm going to start with the last two posts for the week and then work backwards because the last two posts uh, summarize everything that we're doing and, of course, summarize the year that was at the Institute. So first and foremost, I'd actually like to start with the the year of you at the Institute and talk about the things that we've done in the past year. And so 2015 was a great year for us. Um, Number one, our website traffic increased exponentially. Uh, we, uh, when we first started the website, relaunched the website in 2014, uh, we didn't know where this was going to go. Uh, and in the last uh, 18 months, the Institute has seen exponential growth. Uh, we're now getting traffic from all corners of the globe. Uh, people are contacting us from places like uh, Japan, Russia, Australia, uh, South America, uh, Europe, of course, also in in the United States, from from all parts of the United States. And so we're really, 
we think, changing the dialogue in many ways about the South and the Southern tradition. Uh, everyone who listens to this podcast or supports Institute knows that the Southern tradition is not confined to race and slavery. There's something bigger to it. There's something more important to it. And that's what we're doing. We're getting that part of it out. The part that is true and valuable. The part that can give people in America or all over the world hope about something that could be better. And it's not a utopian hope. It's not uh, where you watch a, a, a dystopic film or even a utopian film and think, well, world, the world would be great if we could just do this, which we've never done before. The thing about the Southern tradition and the things that it provides, the lessons that it provides, show us what the world could be if we just chose to listen to the past. And um, there are so many things that the Southern tradition provides that are great uh, benchmarks, great examples for what we could be doing in our life, uh, for how we could organize our government, that uh, we ignore at our own peril. So uh, the Institute has grown and expanded in, outreach, in, in, in our outreach and programs in the last year. Our top article for 2015 was an article from the Clyde Wilson Library, which uh, the Clyde Wilson Library actually had three of the top ten articles for the year. The first, though, lies my teacher told me is uh, uh, a true history of the war for Southern independence was read nearly 100,000 times in the last year. So this is the power of the World Wide Web, uh, something that uh, would have been virtually impossible for this little piece to have this much traffic if it was published in a collection of essays. Uh, but now because of the web, this, this piece was shared everywhere that I saw on social media, uh, various places on the Internet. But, of course, the, the title is... Um, uh, taken from James Lowen's Lies My Teacher Told Me. And uh, I remember years ago, I had a student come up to me after class and, and said, uh, hey, you really need to read this book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, because it blows apart everything you're saying. And uh, you know, Lowen uh, is, um, is infamous for saying things that just simply uh, have no foundation. Uh, and um, he, he runs around talking about the South, and uh, he's got a very famous company, uh, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but uh, Clyde really gets into this fact that uh, the War for Southern Independence was drastically different than what you hear about in the uh, everyday press or in your uh, everyday education uh, in the United States or around the world. Uh, so this is an important article, and if you haven't read it yet, it's we, we linked to it on the website in several places this week, so uh, go ahead and... Uh, and go out and check that out. Some other things that we've done this past year, uh, we had a great October conference in Stone Mountain, Georgia. All of the lectures now are available for free on YouTube for that, with the exception of one lecture because of the audiovisual element of that. Uh, we couldn't capture it in the in the lecture, in, in the video, so uh, we didn't put that up. But uh, all the other lectures are available for free. We'll have them on the website in audio format shortly, uh, but you can at least go out now and watch them. Uh, we've also uh, included uh, several dozen other lectures from our past conferences. There are actually over 100 free lectures on the website from summer schools and conferences going back to when the Institute essentially was founded uh, in 2003. The Institute was founded in 2002, but uh, we have lectures from 2003 forward. So that's over a decade of lectures that are available for free to download uh, in MP3 format 
so you can listen to them in your car or uh, on your computer, wherever you choose. Uh, we also had a great summer school in July. The topic was the Southern tradition, and it featured talks on uh, Southern music, literature, manners, history, religion, economics, uh, and it was well attended. Uh, there were um, close to 80 participants in the uh, summer school, uh, and so that, that's a great thing. If, you, if you're interested in attending another summer school, we have one coming up in, um, in June of this year, uh, and uh, it's going to be in the same location in uh, Sea Island, South Carolina. Uh, so you should make plans to try to go uh, if you want to sponsor a student. Uh, scholarships, we do have those available for uh, high school and college students. So uh, think about attending if you're one of those people or think about uh, providing a scholarship for a student to attend because that's how we're going to perpetuate the institution. And uh, we need young people to help push uh, this, uh, this effort to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Uh, we've also added well over 100 primary documents on the Jeffersonian political tradition to the James McClellan Library. Uh, we're going to be publishing another book in 2016 from the Abbeville Institute Press. So that'll be our second book. The first, uh, Northern Opposition to Mr. Lincoln's War, is a fantastic book. It was born in our 2010 uh, Scholars Conference in uh, Stone Mountain, actually, in fact. And it covers uh, all the people that uh, oppose the war in the North. Uh, which is an, an unexplored topic uh, that's worthy of some serious scholarly study. Uh, we also launched this podcast, hosted by yours truly. This is the seventh episode of that. So we've had six previous episodes, uh, and um, this has been a lot of fun. And we've talked about all kinds of things, the topics of the day, as well as what we've done at the week, uh, the past week at the Abbeville Institute. So if you like what you've seen and heard and read over the past year, again, please make a tax-deductible contribution or donation to the Abbeville Institute. We only exist on your generosity. Also, if you've written something or if you want to write something that you want to see on the website, I linked uh, on, the, uh, on the article uh, that reviewed the year. We also have a, a, a tab that you can do this. It says article submissions at the top of the page. Uh, you can go in and send along an article for our consideration. We do publish things all the time, and I'll talk about one this week that uh, came in that way, uh, and um, so we publish things all the time from people who just want to uh, talk about the Southern tradition and and uh, help explore it with us. Uh, remember that uh, this new wave of PC is not just an assault on the South; it's, it's an assault on the very fabric of American history and Western civilization, without a doubt. Uh, there's a greater effort here to do something uh, revolutionary, and so at the beginning of this piece, I mentioned that you know when you listen to modern talk radio like the Sean Hannity show, uh, Sean Hannity begins saying, welcome to the revolution. Well, people realize there's nothing that he's really saying that's really revolutionary or that inspiring. That's why people are finding the Abbeville Institute. But not just that, he's missing the point, the revolution is coming on the other side. They are radically transforming the United States. And uh, they're doing so piece by piece. And people are pushing back. But uh, this is going to be a long process. And just because there are a few victories against this PC attack, it doesn't mean it's going to stop. Uh, it'll only keep going. So we need to have people out there who are willing uh, to defend not only the Southern tradition, but also the Southern tradition, meaning the American tradition, and who have the intellectual fortitude to do it. So 2015 was a great year. 2016 should be even better. Uh, if you haven't registered for our February conference, do it. Do it now. We've only got a couple of months before it happens. So please get out there. 
It's $150 uh, per person. It's in, uh, it's in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, you'll have a great event, several great speakers, uh, and um, we really want to see you there. Uh, you can also like our social media pages, so please consider liking us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Join our email list. You get a free book for doing that. You can't beat that. Uh, Kirkpatrick Sales, Emancipation Hell. Uh, you get that for free if you sign up, so please do that. Share our articles around. Do what you can to help uh, explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition with us. We look forward to your support in 2016. So that said, let's talk about some of the articles that were very important uh, for us and the most widely read articles of 2015. First and foremost, as I already mentioned, Lies My Teacher Told Me by Clyde Wilson. Number two was a, a piece by a uh, Massachusetts independent scholar. I'm sorry, not Massachusetts, Minnesota independent scholar. I, sorry, Dave, don't mean to lump you in Massachusetts. But from Minnesota, uh, Dave Benner was the Civil War about slavery. Uh, Dave has uh, written a, a couple of really good pieces for us uh, on the, uh, the founding tradition but he got into this idea about uh, slavery and the war. Uh, it was the number two article for the year. Uh, we talked about The Dark Side of Abraham Lincoln last week by Thomas Landis, another great piece. And then number four is another article by Clyde Wilson, What is a Southerner? Uh, this is a fantastic look at what makes a Southerner a Southerner. Is it just, uh, uh, and if you listen to Drew Gilpin Faust, it'll be what makes a Southerner a Southerner? Well, because they, they, uh, they believe in uh, race and slavery. Uh, but Clyde gets into, um, it's, it's much deeper than that. In fact, it's, <laughs> it really has nothing to do with that at all. It's, it's something that uh, is more uh, uh, substantial than just this defense of race and slavery. Uh, number five, uh, Paul Gottfried's Why Do They Hate the South and Its Symbols. Uh, uh, Mr. Gottfried has been uh, around for a long time in the conservative uh, movement, for whatever that, that is and whatever it's worth, but not from the South, but he wrote a fantastic piece on the South and why this attack is coming. This was published at the UNS Review, actually, before we published it on our site, but it got a lot of traffic. Uh, number six, uh, Confederate Flag Day. Uh, this is an older piece by Clyde Wilson. It was a speech that he gave, actually, on uh, the Confederate flag, but it was picked up in a Salon magazine or Salon Online magazine, and so it had a lot of traffic. Uh, they, the folks at Salon don't like us, so uh, they, they published this and talking about the Republican primaries and somehow these, uh, you know, are backwards um, Southerners down here. And we talked about this when it happened a few weeks ago, but uh, we, we don't know anything. Uh, uh, number seven, John C. Calhoun and States Rights by James Rutledge Roche. Uh, he actually had the next two, that and then the real Robert E. Lee. Uh, Mr. Roche is an independent scholar, um, a classicist, um, and uh, he's uh, uh, just a great... Uh, amateur historian, and, and uh, there are so many of these people out there that are not professionals who don't work in the field, and they write some really good stuff, in fact, better stuff than the professionals oftentimes. And uh, so these two pieces, one on Calhoun and one on Lee, had a lot of traffic. Uh, Lee's birthday, of course, coming up in a couple of weeks. This is one of the better pieces we've put out there on Lee, the real Robert E. Lee, uh, and um, going after some of the misconceptions that are now circulating about Robert E. Lee. Uh, number nine, the flag controversy, We Did It to Ourselves by John Devaney. Um, uh, Dr. Devaney is uh, also one of uh, Clyde Wilson's former students. Um, and uh, he, in this, he gets to the point that, look, what happened with the flag is that we allowed, because of the way we defended the flag, we allowed the, the other side to take the offensive. By saying it's heritage, not hate, 
uh, you're actually playing into the other side uh, and not defending it for what it really is, which is a symbol of Jeffersonian self-determination. Uh, and that's what needs to be taken out of the flag. But this piece was, uh, was well-read, and a lot of people uh, you know, commented on it. It, it wasn't one that um, often was uh, well-received because people like to hear that. But we have to learn how to define the Southern tradition and what it really means. And the, the flag is simply a symbol, not of uh, what people like to focus on, which, again, is race and slavery, but this idea of Jeffersonian self-determination, of independence that was codified by the Declaration of Independence and then carried forward in the American tradition. That's what it means to people at the Abbeville Institute. Uh, to many people around the world, that's what it means. Uh, but the other side has been able to hijack it. And even in the South, some, the, the way it's been distorted by some Southerners and some people around the United States uh, is, is um, detrimental to this. And then finally, uh, number 10, Slavery in the Confederate Constitution by Vito Musumeli. Uh, Mr. Musumeli is a, is a retired attorney. He did a wonderful job here looking at uh, the meaning of slavery in the Confederate Constitution, how it was different from the U.S. Constitution, how it was the same, uh, and how the institution of slavery was codified and defended by the Confederacy. Uh, this is a wonderful piece. Uh, and uh, anyone who hasn't read the Confederate Constitution should do so. Of course, the, the most important book ever written on it was by Abbeville scholar uh, Dr. Marshall DeRosa, The Confederate Constitution of 1861, a line-by-line, clause-by-clause look at the differences and similarities between the U.S. Constitution and the Confederate Constitution. One of the things that the, uh, the other side often does is say, well, the Confederate Constitution, the only difference was that it codified slavery. Well, this is simply not true. Uh, anyone who's read the document knows that's not true. There are substantial differences in the two. Uh, what the Confederacy did was take out some of the things that were threatening to what they saw as a Jeffersonian America uh, in many ways, and uh, they codified things they could do to prevent some of the things that had happened in the U.S. Constitution. So it wasn't just slavery. There were other issues like federally funded internal improvements, protective tariffs, things that have been a problem. They changed the powers of the executive branch. They changed the nature of the executive branch by only allowing for a one-time uh, six-year term for the executive, six-year term for, for the executive branch. So uh, there are some major differences between the Confederate Constitution and the U.S. Constitution. So all of these articles are linked on the website. Read them again if you haven't read them before. They're fantastic. Uh, these are the best uh, of, of the year in terms of how many times they were read. Uh, and again, the, um, the lies my teacher told me was read nearly 100,000 times in 2015. So that's, that's fantastic. Uh, as for the, our top 10 for December, uh, the aforementioned the dark side of Abraham Lincoln and the Confederate Flag Day were both the number one and number two. But several other articles we've talked about on this podcast. What was the Confederacy after all about Kirkpatrick Sale? We've already mentioned that. One, I'm going to skip over number four because I want to talk about it with a current event and what's uh, an interview that just happened, but it's John C. Calhoun and slavery as a positive good, what he said. Uh, there's also a companion to that, to that article, John C. Calhoun and slavery as a positive good, what he did not say. And these are written both by, uh, by Clyde Wilson. So I'm going to talk about that one in a minute because there's an interesting quotation going back to this recent interview. Uh, the same old stand by John Shelton Reed, Again, a fantastic piece looking at what uh, what the South is defending now, and what it's not, what, what is defensible in the South. And this was written in, in 1980, and uh, what we can take out of the Southern tradition going forward. The Southern tradition can be a positive. Uh, it's a positive in a way, as I mentioned before, it's not a utopian positive, 
but it's a traditional positive, and there is a difference in that. But it can also be progressive, and Reed gets into that a little bit. Uh, a Brave New World in the South by William Wilson. We talked about this one, too. Uh, a great article looking at some of the things that are going on, this PC cleansing of the South and, and how this is happening in Southern institutions. There is a pushback against this, thankfully, but uh, there, the effort is not going to go away to change, fundamentally change uh, the fabric of, of Southern, uh, the Southern tradition and also uh, the American tradition as well. Uh, to the size of states, there is a limit. Measurements for the success of a state by Kirkpatrick Sale. Again, we talked about this, uh, the ideal size of a state. Jefferson was right by Dave Benner. Uh, so a great, another great little piece by Dave Benner. Uh, Forgotten Founder George Mason, number nine, by yours truly. Uh, this was a chapter from my politically incorrect guide to the Founding Fathers. I published it uh, over a year ago on the website and then republished, well, circulated again in our email newsletter. Uh, so it got some traction off of that, uh, people reading it through the through the newsletter. Uh, and if you didn't listen to that podcast, we, I mentioned uh, George Mason's birthday a couple of weeks ago and how important he was uh, to the founding generation, also to the Southern tradition. And Mason blows holes in many of these ideas about the Southern tradition and what it actually was. So Mason's such an important guy. And then last but not least, a Wisconsin Copperhead by John Battelle. Again, talked about this for the last for last week's podcast and uh, how there were many people in the North who were opposed to the Lincoln administration uh, in Wisconsin and elsewhere, but there were actually draft riots in Wisconsin, and uh, you had... Uh, a great newspaper editor there in Wisconsin who was uh, opposed to, to the war and opposed to the Lincoln administration. Not initially, but he came to this position as he started studying the war and the causes and other things that were going on. And he said, my gosh, we are, uh, we are, we're the British uh, right now uh, in so many ways. He didn't actually come out and say that, but the idea was we're the British and the South are the patriots of 1776. Okay, so the, the article on Calhoun and slavery is a positive good. Uh, just yesterday, I want to talk about this in reference to an interview that came out yesterday by Quentin Tarantino, who's got a film coming out in a couple of weeks, The Hateful Eight. That's another Tarantino uh, flick where the South is going to be portrayed as absolute barbarians, uh, inhuman demons. I mean, this is uh, the way that if you look at the South in cinema today, and this also works into another Another piece that we had on the website uh, this week. But the way the South is portrayed in the cinema today is much different than the way it was portrayed back in uh, the early 20th century and the late 19th century uh, in literature. But in, when, when the cinema first happened, the early 20th century, even through silent film and then later through uh, film in color and, of course, all the, all the developments we had in, in filmmaking in the 1930s, uh, the South was portrayed much differently than it is today. If you look at uh, any Quentin Tarantino film, whether it was Django Unchained or this new Hateful Eight, uh, or if you have um, go back to Abraham Lincoln, uh, Vampire Hunter, now, Southerners are not even human. They're subhuman. They're vampires. Uh, and so this is how the Southern tradition and how Southerners are portrayed in modern film. They're always the bad guys. Uh, in fact, um, when uh, we ran the, uh, the lectures from the so Mountain Conference, uh, Thomas Fleming talks about this in his uh, talk on the Southern Genocide. Uh, they're subhuman. Uh, they're, they're not even welcome in polite company anymore. They are always the bad guys. And, and if they are going to be portrayed in a, in a different light, then they're the comic relief. They're the, they're the hillbillies that, um, that uh, you know, they're so stupid they can't get out of their own way. 
Uh, and so they're that they're that thing. They're, they're they're the comedy in the film because you all know. I mean, the South is simply a character of, caricature of itself. It's either they're really brutal people like in Deliverance um, or in a Tarantino t- t- uh, flick, or they're uh, Roscoe P. Coltrane, or they're um, uh, Mater in uh, in Cars, which um, you know it's funny. Uh, the the Larry the Cable Guy. I mean, this is funny. But uh, that's not what the South is. The South has a long and important intellectual tradition and cultural tradition that needs to be examined by simply relegating it to either an evil or stupidity. You're missing what the South actually is. And so that's why the Abbeville Institute exists. But this, this, um, this article by uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, he, he did an interview uh, with... Uh, for his upcoming movie, uh, The Hateful Eight. And uh, he, in this interview, he said that uh, the... Uh, this is his quote. All of a sudden, people started talking about the Confederacy in America in a way that they haven't before. I mean, I've always felt the rebel flag was some American swastika. And people are starting to question about stuff like statues of Bedford Forest and parks. Well, it's about damn time, if you ask me. This is, this is what Tarantino said. Uh, and so let me talk about that idea of the flag as a swastika, the American swastika. And we, we mentioned, we got into this at, at um, the conference in, in, uh, in Stone Mountain, and we'll, sort, we'll get on this topic again when we go to Charleston. Um, but that's how the flag is often portrayed by the other side, uh, that is simply an American swastika. And, and so this piece on Calhoun, uh, Clyde Wilson uh, gets into that, in fact. Uh, in one of the uh, paragraphs, and so this is why this, this piece is important. In one of the paragraphs, and I'm going to quote this, he says, quote, It is a common thing now to equate the Old South with Nazi Germany. Nothing proves more conclusively the historical ignorance and ideologically driven deceitfulness of present commentators. Servitude in the Old South was domestic. People were held to labor by families, not by a totalitarian state. Such servitude is, is a vastly familiar in human history. There was no barbed wire around the plantations, hardly anything that could even be called a police force in the South. True, the legal theory of chattel slavery was harsh. But the plantation were homes and farms where people were born, lived, and buried, not arbitrary and lawless, but governed by longstanding custom and public opinion the immemorial rounds of, of uh, agriculture, and the give and take of everyday life. Far from being seats of hopeless barbarity, they were the homes and livelihoods of more than half of the great founders and early leaders of the United States. Many northern and European visitors found them to be places of peace and contented life. Many of the survivors of plantation servitude interviewed in the 1930s remembered them as marked by a consoling and comfortable life, too many to be easily dismissed. Disconnection from culture has proceeded so far that Americans are literally unable to imagine the past or understand any society except in terms of their own narrow reality. They cannot conceive of a society that was a familiar but not egalitarian. This destroys the capacity to understand not only the Old South, but the Bible and most of history and the world's great literature. And he says, if one wants to bring up fascism, it was the North which invaded, occupied, and seized the wealth of other people's lands and did so without apology and glorifying, and glorying, I'm sorry, in the right of the stronger to dispose of the weaker. Often before and during the war, Northern leaders 
vaunted their pure Anglo-Saxonism as superior to the inferior mongrel breed of Southerners. It was Hitler who admired Abraham Lincoln for ruthlessly crushing resistance to the central state. So when you have someone like Tarantino bring, oh, this is the Nazi, this is the American uh, swastika, it could be further from the truth. Uh, again, Hitler was admired, or, I'm sorry, Hitler admired Lincoln, not the other way around. I mean, he, doesn't, he didn't admire the South. Uh, and if you think of, well, I mean, this, this society based on uh, racial superiority, he wasn't admiring the South. And if you look at, uh, in the North, there were so many times that uh, if you look at the Republican Party itself, free, free soil, free labor, free men, free white soil, free white labor, free white men. This was a, a party that was dedicated to preserving white people in the Western territories. There's a tremendous amount of racism in the Republican Party. And Eric Foner, for all the terrible things he's written, actually wrote a decent book on this, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, about the Republican Party. And he brings up the, the racism of the Republican Party, though he does uh, tend to marginalize it to say, well, these were the Southerners in the Republican Party that felt this way. Northerners didn't feel this way, uh, which is simply not true. Uh, so um, y y you had uh, a much more complex history when it comes to this. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, this ignores the fact that the U.S. flag flew over slavery longer than the Confederate flag ever did, uh, that many flags, and if you look at the comments on that particular article, it's on the Daily Mail, uh, the U.K. Daily Mail. Now, if you look at the comments on all these Brits that are defending the flag and saying, well, wait a second here, uh, you know, the flag doesn't stand for that. Uh, not just that, uh, one person brought up the fact, well, if we want to mention this, well, then let's get rid of uh, the, the, uh, the Union Jack because the cross of St. George flew over slavery for hundreds of years. So we might as well just get rid of that thing. And that, in fact, is going to be the topic of my particular presentation at the, uh, at the conference. Let's get rid of symbols of slavery in the North. Not just in the North, but around the world. If we're really going to just start eradicating symbols of slavery, let's look at all the things that need to be torn down. So that's going to be the topic of, of my talk. And it's, I think that more than anything else, that's going to prove conclusively that where this is going to go uh, ultimately at the end of the day. So um, if you haven't read our top 10 for the month, if you haven't uh, gone to the website and looked at the top 10 for the year, please do that. And this John C. Calhoun and Slavery is a Positive Good, what he said is a fantastic look at Calhoun from the greatest Calhoun scholar in the United States ever. I mean, uh, Clyde Wilson edited the Calhoun papers for uh, near 30 years. And so if there's uh, anybody who knows about Calhoun, it's, uh, it's Clyde Wilson. And, and thankfully, in our book that we wrote together, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, uh, he wrote the chapter on Calhoun. I, I wouldn't have done that, but he wrote the chapter on Calhoun. And uh, he's often been asked why he never wrote a biography of Calhoun. And his response is, well, he has. He, he wrote the introductions to all the uh, editions of the Calhoun papers, so essentially he wrote a biography of Calhoun, if you just look at the introductions to all those volumes of the Calhoun papers. And so um, it's well worth your time if you, have, if you want to read primary documents to also read those introductions as well to those particular, uh, to those particular volumes. Uh, so now, uh, the rest of the week, uh, we had four other articles for this week. Uh, the first, I mentioned before that if you are um, interested in submitting an article, please do so. And we, we publish stuff all the time from people who say, hey, I wrote this and I'd like you to read it. Would you consider it? The first... Uh, article for the week of December 28th was a piece entitled Rebels of the Golden State by a man named, a young man named Matt DeSanti. Now, Matt DeSanti is from California. Not only that, he's a high school senior in California. And so when uh, I, I received this article and I said, yes, we can use this, 
and I asked for a biography, he emails me back and says, well, I, I attend high school in California. I was blown away because this article is better than what you find out of a lot of PhDs uh, in the United States who have been to graduate school. And here's a high school senior. It was fantastic. And what he does is talk about how there were people in uh, the state of California in 1860 and 61 who supported secession, uh, and they were uh, they were not just these hayseeds who uh, think that well, I mean, these are just you know morons who support the con- support the Confederacy and secession. He says the people that supported the Confederacy were a mix of well-educated, high-standing members of society and middle-class individuals that sought to protect and preserve the self-determination of their communities. And he brings up, uh, of course, Albert Sidney Johnston, who was in California at the time. Uh, and he also brings up this um, uh, this California Confederate flag, the flag of J.P. Gillis. Uh, it was captured, but it's a and there's a picture of it on the website. It's an interesting flag. Uh, it uh, has uh, more more stars in it than any of the other Confederate flags because Gillis believed that several states, not just slave states, but free states as well, would join the Confederacy. Uh, because they supported this idea of self-determination. Not just that, uh, California is known as the Bear Flag State because of the Bear Flag Republic. California had a secession tradition. They seceded from from Mexico uh, during the Mexican War, and there was was an attempt at that point to have an independent Republic of California. So there's this independent streak in California, and and, uh, California had a had a pocket of the state which was very pro-Southern, even into the 20th century. Uh, so uh, people don't often realize that, but uh, there was this very strong secessionist sentiment in California, which had nothing to do with slavery. Of course, you know, Johnston was a, a Southerner, but uh, a lot of these people had nothing to do with the institution. California was a free state, and yet they supported self-determination. So it's a great little uh, little piece. Uh, you should take your time. It's uh, just a little over a thousand words. Take the time to go out and, and, and read it by a high school senior from California. And so we asked him to, to write some more stuff for us because he did such a good job with this little piece. So here again is why you need to support uh, scholarships and things for these type of students to come to our summer schools because they do great stuff and, and they go out and they, they, um, they become professionals and, and uh, really help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Uh, this, the second piece uh, for the week, The Immortals by Karen Stokes. This is a chapter from her four, well, her now-published book, uh, The Immortals. Uh, and it's the subtitle is A Story of Love and War. It's a historical novel uh, set, uh, set in Charleston uh, and, uh, and no, I'm sorry, South Carolina, uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. And um, she talks about the, uh, the horrors of... Um, of uh, life for people in the South during the war, and then uh, in Columbia as the city was burned uh, in 1865. Um, and he, the, the main character was from Charleston, and uh, he finds his home in ruins. It's, it's, it, and so chapter 11 talks about, uh, the last line is fantastic in this chapter, but uh, there's a conversation about uh, what happens here, and um, when when the main character returns home, and his line is, My city, he whispered mournfully, hearing the dull, heavy explosion of a shell that had found his faraway target. My beautiful city. And how how the destruction of Charleston, this over one-year siege of Charleston. People have to remember, 
Charleston did not have to be destroyed as it was. It had already surrendered. There was nothing that Charleston could really do at the point when it was shelled for over a year, a 500-day siege to Charleston. What the Union Navy was doing, people don't realize this, was just using the city as target practice. Uh, that was it. It was vindictive. It was vicious. It was, let's destroy Charleston just for the sake of destroying Charleston. Same thing with the sack of Columbia, South Carolina. Nothing. I mean, Columbia had surrendered. And now when you drive into Columbia, uh, as you're going into the city, there is a statue in honor of William Tecumseh Sherman in Columbia, South Carolina, the city that burned because of Sherman's troops. And it's amazing how this has happened. Uh, but you have a, a statue honoring Sherman going into Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, and so people don't realize, they don't remember. I mean, the cost of this, the sack and destruction of Charleston and, and Columbia not only to the white population, but to the, the African-American population of that area. Uh, there's also another piece on our website that Paul Graham had put together from the, uh, the, the um, WPA Writers Project and in interviewing slaves, uh, former slaves. This is what Clyde Wilson alluded to in his piece on Calhoun. But how many of these slaves, uh, former slaves, remembered that it was Northerners who were abusing the South at this time, how they, how they remembered this with fear and trepidation, uh, the property destruction, the violence that was committed by northern soldiers coming through the south. And they didn't remember it fondly. It wasn't that they were talking about this and gleefully remembering what happened. They remembered it with, uh, with extreme sorrow uh, and, and how things were bad at this time. So it wasn't just the white population that suffered. It was the black population of the south that suffered too because of this. And uh, this is often the, un, the untold story, the, the untold cost of total war in the south. Uh, Wednesday's piece, and so if you can you can buy the book uh, on Amazon.com. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, Karen Stokes writes for us quite often. She's a, a great writer. Uh, now, also uh, on on um, Wednesday, keeping with this theme of, of Southern literature, uh, we published uh, Clyde Wilson's introduction to James Pettigrew's notes on Spain. And Pettigrew is uh, not as famous as Pickett in the charge at Gettysburg, but it's Pettigrew's men who really suffered the most in that particular charge uh, at, at uh, Gettysburg on the third and fateful day, Pettigrew being from North Carolina. Uh, and uh, he was a great scholar. Uh, and uh, it was uh, a, a, a book that was privately printed, uh, but he had traveled in Spain, and he talked about the Spanish culture and how it related to the South. And so this little book was, was pretty much ignored throughout much of uh, Southern history, and, and Clyde, uh, who wrote his dissertation on Pettigrew and then later published that, and then uh, published this, uh, uh, this copy of, uh, of his notes on Spain, uh, talks about what Pettigrew thought in the comparison between the, the South and Spain and how they were so similar, uh, Spanish culture and Southern culture, uh, and how this really is a work of Southern literature and something that should be read by every Southerner, uh, and his uh, Clyde's introduction to it is fantastic. Um, it, it really summarizes the fact that people in the South were well-read, well-studied, well-cultured. Uh, they weren't just these devils, uh, vampires, hayseeds who didn't have any refinement or civilization or culture. This book by Pettigrew uh, makes that... Uh, Clear. I mean, with, without question. Um, 
And Clyde actually says in this little piece, about 1970, when I first began to study James Johnston Pettigrew and his forgotten book, I remember feeling strong in existing scholarly neglect and condescension in regard to the intellectual life in the Old South. Few scholars, it seemed, took Southern thought seriously, with some exceptions in regard to a few conspicuous pro-slavery writers. Despite the inherent implausibility that nothing of interest had been written between Thomas Jefferson and William Faulkner, the intellectual life of the 19th century was dismissed as of insufficient quality and quant- uh, quantity and quality to meet merit consideration. So he's getting to the point that people uh, just ignore the South at their, at their own peril. And he mentions all the great writers in the South in the antebellum period, William Gilmore Sims, uh, James Henry Hammond, Henry Timrod, George Frederick Holmes, Beverly Tucker, George Tucker, Henry Hughes, uh, Louisa McCord, Mary Chestnut, Augusta Jane Evans Wilson, uh, James Thornwell, Robert Louis Dabney, um, all these people. And Pettigrew's in that class in terms of this wonderful book he wrote about Spain. So if you haven't had a chance to read that book or read uh, Clyde's introduction to a, uh, a new copy of that book, I highly recommend it. And then finally, on Thursday, uh, there was a piece by Gail Jarvis on the uh, Stark Young book, So Read the Rose, which became a film. And um, this particular film was panned. It, it really didn't have that great of, uh, of a uh, success in, in the 1930s. 1935 was when the film came out. Uh, it came out before Gone with the Wind, uh, and now though it's such a it's such a fantastic uh, view of uh, of the old South, uh, and uh, it was uh, at the time it should have been more well received. But it's a contrast to how this how the South was portrayed in the in the United States in the 1930s through film compared to how it's portrayed in 2015 or 2016 through film. So you compare Sir Red the Rose with The Hateful Eight or with Django Unchained or any of these others, and you see how people thought about the South at the time and how it was so much different. Uh, and how Stark Young's book, Sir Red the Rose, was read uh, by many Southerners and enjoyed by many Southerners, but it's a, it's a forgotten novel now. Uh, and it focuses on Stark Young's family from uh, Mississippi, in fact, and, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting book uh, and, in that it's a window into the Old South and a, and a long view of, of the South. Uh, and he talks about uh, social interactions between Union officers and the Natchez aristocracy. Uh, he talks about what's going on in, in Natchez at the time. He's talking about um, how uh, the local Confederate forces began... Um, Vigilante reprisals against raiders and looters, um, and he and he says that you know Jarvis mentions that so read the rose is largely based on actual events and real person persons in Stark Young's own family. Uh, other parts of the novel result from his extensive research into histories, diaries, and letters, as well as his, his familiarity with oral legends. And uh, Jarvis says although fiction, the incidents and characters portrayed in the book are more realistic than many found in other so-called Civil War novels. This unusual book presents one of the better depictions of the antebellum South and its unique planter aristocracy, and the book is still in print. And then he goes on to say, the 1935 film of Sir Red the Rose did not get the enthusiastic public reception expected, which is understandable, as Hollywood scaled down this protracted novel to fit a screen time of less than 90 minutes. 
Although the plotline of the film generally follows the book, screenwriters combined the Bedford and uh, McGee families into one family, altered some of the relationships, inserted new characters, and added a couple of additional scenes. Still, he says the film is worth watching. It can be found on YouTube, and its cast includes some of the stellar actors at the time. The characters and events are portrayed realistically, and at the time the film was made, antebellum Southerners did not have to be depicted with today's exaggerated regional stereotypes of the South. So it's a much more realistic and uh, accurate portrayal of the South than what you find in modern film. So here we are at the end of the year, the end of 2015, going into 2016. We're seeing that uh, this, which started in June, this PC attack on the South is not abating. It's, it's going to get stronger. It's going to get much more uh, substantial in the future. Please consider helping the Abbeville Institute push back on this. We are uh, one of the only places you can find on the web that uh, does push back uh, that, that does explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, that, that does not concede that the South is simply race and slavery, that there's more to it, that, that there are examples that the South can provide to life in the 21st century. And um, this is what Richard Weaver said, uh, in which we, we talked about a, a Weaver piece a few weeks ago on the podcast. This is what Weaver said uh, about the Southern tradition in the conclusion of his uh, great book, The Southern Tradition at Bay. Now, no one wants to live in the Old South, but the Old South can give us things that teach us how to live in the future. And that's the Southern tradition that we need to be hanging on to. That's the Southern tradition that we want to preserve. And so if you read enough of the Abbeville Institute, you know that uh, what we're looking at is what can we get out of the Southern tradition? What does it provide for modern life uh, in modern society? Uh, not only that, what in Southern culture is worthy of preservation? And there is so much of it. It's not just antebellum homes. It's antebellum literature. Uh, it's a political tradition that would provide a prescription to modern societal ills. Uh, and this is not something that's utopian where it's, wouldn't life be great if, if uh, life could be like this, you know, as socialism is, Marxism. Those are utopian prescriptions. Fourierism, all these things that came out in the 19th century. These were utopian societies. The South already had what they thought was the best society in terms of a political society and how they provided the most liberty to the citizens of, of the United States. And the United States lived under that for 80 years, what the South had given uh, America. And then that was changed after the war, and now we're living in the aftermath of that. You know, Reconstruction is ongoing. Uh, so if you want to study what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, if you want to explore those things with us, please donate to the Institute. Please take the time. Uh, for less than five bucks a month, you can become a member and uh, help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition uh, and keep things like this podcast and our website going uh, so that we can preserve these things for the future. Until next time, good day. Good day.